Let's uh, turn, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts. I'd like to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. <clears throat> I've been, uh, ever since, of course, the, the, the transition here um, from uh, back at the beginning of May, been praying about kind of what direction to go, uh, specifically about um, uh, it's, it's important as a church that we, uh, we go through books of the Bible, we preach through books of the Bible, we study books of the Bible together um, and go through them and give us a, you know, to, to, to get the broad view as well as the, you know, as, as, as you say, the, the, the view of the forest and the view of the trees. And so I've been praying about that, and um, I think the Lord would have us to begin a study in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a long book, uh, 28 chapters, but there is so much good, so many good things in the book of Acts. And so we're going to start, the Lord would help us, in, in the, into the book of Acts. And this kind of dovetails with also with another matter I've been praying about um, for the church is the, as to what our, our theme for this year, you know, last year, or I guess it's been a couple years back now, we we had a, a theme for a passion for the passion, and we put up the uh, the decorations there, and and so there is a theme that's on my heart, and it comes out of the Book of Acts. But I think uh, as as we go start going through the Book of Acts, hopefully we can, um, you know, I can share that with you more, especially with uh, where our church is at this moment, and where you know where we where we're headed. Uh, we're headed, hopefully, in a biblical direction, right? We're headed, hopefully, in a, a direction where we uh, serve the Lord together. And, uh, and so, you know, as, as we go through the book of Acts, hopefully I'll be able to share that with you, what's kind of on my heart, and hopefully it'll, the Lord will put it on your heart as well. So let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 together. The Bible says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he had through the he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, uh, this book of Acts. Thank you for what you have given to us in this book to be an example to us, to instruct us. Lord, I pray for our church, Choice Hills Baptist Church, that you have established. For each one of the people that, are, that make up this body, I pray that you would help this uh, as we begin this, this journey through the book of Acts. Lord, there's so much in here, Lord, that you would uh, give your people understanding and wisdom, and cause, I pray, by your Spirit, this book to be extremely profitable and helpful to your people. Lord, we, 
we don't know what kinds of things we might uncover in this book and what things we might study and how they might affect our lives at this moment. But Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct each step of the way. Lord, even tonight as we look at the first few verses, please help us. Please give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now the book of Acts is, uh, is some people call it, the, you know, your Bible probably says the Acts of the Apostles. Terrible name, of course. Um, but the book of Acts is actually, it is a continuing story of what was in the Gospels. In other words, as you see here, the former treaties have I made. We'll talk about that in a second. Of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, Dr. Luke. And uh, we know that because of Luke chapter 1. We'll see that in a second. But he mentions Theophilus in both cases. And he also mentions the former treaties, which is referring to the book of Luke. Although Luke is never, never named in the book of Acts as the writer. His name does appear here, but not as the writer. But this, uh, this, so he writes the gospel of Luke, and he talks about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Notice the word began. So the book of Luke begins to talk about what Jesus did while he was on earth, and he, he, uh, all the things he taught, and all the things that he did. So that covers pretty much everything. That covers everything. And then you get to the end of the book of Luke, and we studied that in our, on Wednesday night about the uh, Great Commission, the account of the Great Commission. And it ends with the Lord's ascension. And right at that point is where the book of Acts picks up to describe the continuing work of Christ. Now, he, he, listen to what I'm going to say, and we'll, it'll make sense in a minute. The continuing work of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit through the church. That's what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is about the continuing work of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit through the church. All right, so let's look at the book of John real quick and chapter 14. We'll just walk through chapters 14 and chapter a couple places in chapter 16. We won't spend a lot of time here. But it's important for us to understand. Here's the point I want you to get from what we're going to read here in John. Is that the Lord told the disciples, the Lord told the disciples that His work after His ascension would not be over. That He would still be with them. In fact, in our study of the Great Commission, if you recall, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the Bible says, Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Now, we know the Lord is not physically here. He's in heaven, but yet He is with us. And we talked about that as in the, the person of the Holy Spirit. And then in Mark 16, verse 20, the Bible says that the, they went out and preached the gospel, the Lord working with them, right? And confirming the word with signs following. So even though the Lord is ascended, yet in some places in the Scripture, you can find Him still present. That's the key. John 14, look at verse 12. This is, this is where it really overlaps with the book of Acts. Verily, Jesus speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works. If I could just suggest there, the acts, the works, that I do, shall he, shall he do also, 
And greater works than these shall he do. Because, notice that, I go to my Father. See, John 14, verse 12, the Lord says that the disciples, those believers, will do greater works than what the Lord has done because He's going to His Father, which is a reference you'll see in a minute to... See, the Lord Jesus could not send the Spirit because until He Himself had gone to the Father. And then after he, was, he, he had ascended back to the Father where He is to this day, He said, I will send the Spirit. And so when the Spirit came, that's what He's referring to, because I go to my Father, the Spirit came and so that the church does greater works than these. But notice the future, the future tense here. You see, the Lord is looking past His ascension, past when He goes to the Father. You see that? You know what He's talking about? The book of Acts. It's interesting because he says, the works that I do, greater works, which is, which is a synonym to the word acts, which is always the acts of the apostles. Look at chapter 14, verse number 17. The Bible says this, even this, the Spirit, or verse 16 to get the context, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That means Jesus himself is one comforter, Then you have another comforter after him that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, that's the second comforter, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. So what's interesting is Jesus came into the world, the world saw him and the world rejected him. So he went back to the father. And when he went back to the father, he sent the spirit of God into the world and the world cannot see the Spirit of God. But He is nonetheless here. He is nevertheless present. All right? He just, it just cannot be observed. He cannot be observed as Jesus was observed. But He did come. He has come. He is here. It says, The world seeth, it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye, notice this, the disciples, ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Notice that little dispensational nugget there. The Holy Spirit, the Lord tells the disciples while he's still on earth, he says, the Spirit of God is with you and shall be future in you. So the the ministry of the Holy Spirit changed from the time that Jesus was on earth to the time after his ascension. It changed. The Holy Spirit was with the disciples And then Jesus is speaking of a day in which the Holy Spirit will be in the disciples. And verse 16 says, with you forever. And the word abide, that's a permanent residence. That's not a visit. That's a permanent residence in us. And that's verse 23 says the same thing. Jesus said, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we, notice what he says, Jesus and the father will come unto him and make our abode. That's our permanent dwelling place with him. You see, so the permanence of the Spirit of God, the ministry of the Spirit of God changed. With the disciples, he was with them as a a companion, but the Lord is speaking of, of a day, which is now our day, in which the Spirit of God is permanently indwelling those that believe in Christ. He is in us. So much so that we've already talked about in weeks past 
that he is a seal, uh, a mark of the genuine article that is a true child of God. Look at chapter 14, verse, uh, verse number 18. The Lord says further, I will not leave you comfortless. Notice what he says. I, future, will come to you. Now, this is, this is not directly referenced to the Spirit of God. Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, I'm going to leave you. That's when he ascends. But he says, I'm going to send another comforter. And then he says, I will come to you. So while we, while we speak technically of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we could also just as correctly say, Jesus is in us. And of course, that's what the Bible teaches, right? Does it not teach us that Christ liveth in me? Right, Brother Ari? Christ liveth in me. He abides in me. Not just the Spirit of God, but also the Father. We just read the verse. The Father and Christ dwell, abide in us. So what you have in us is the fullness of the Trinity. <laughs> Permanently inside every believer. doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, male or female, young or old. It makes no difference. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Look at verse 19. Yet a little while the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. Again, future. The world would not see him, but, uh, but, the, but a believer would see him. Look at chapter 16, verse 16, right across the page there, another page over. He says, a little while, and ye, see, ye shall see, not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. You see, I know these, this language is a little bit confusing because it kind of goes back and forth and the, the pronouns change, but there's a reason for that, which I'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 22. And ye know that ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. You see that? So... The world can't see the Spirit of God. The world just thinks we're, we're kooks or we're crazy or whatever they think. But God is in us as a believer in Christ. Now, going back to chapter 14, verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Again, a permanent dwelling. They were confused at that in verse 22. What do you mean manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, by that invisible Spirit of God. This is why we refer to the Spirit of God, number one, as a person, and number two, as equal to the Son and the Father. In no way less, in no way inferior. This is why the errors of Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults that teach that the Spirit of God is just a force, uh, an influence, but not a person. Well, that's not true. In this passage, you see very clearly that the Spirit of God is a person equated with the Son and the Father. Look at verse 26 of chapter 4. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He, notice the He, not it, He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever 
I have said unto you. Notice, the Father will send the Holy Ghost in Christ's name. You know what that means? That means the Spirit of God would come representing Christ in my name. So the Spirit of God says, comes to us and he says, I'm here because Jesus sent me. I'm here in his place. All right, then you go to chapter 16, which we've already looked at partially. Look at verse 8. Verse 7 talks about the comforter coming. Well, let's just read verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. You might, I know I'm belaboring this. I know that. But I'm, getting, I'm going somewhere, I promise. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. That's his ascension. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's future, after his ascension. Verse 8, and when he is come, that's the coming of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, this coming is not, as I mentioned before, this coming is not some sort of like, glow that come out, this aura that comes over the world. The Spirit of God is present. No. This is a distinctive and clearly understood coming. This is, the, the Spirit of God did not come to the earth. The Spirit of God came to permanently abide in believers. That's how He came. Just as Jesus came by, by way of Mary, the virgin, Right? So the Spirit of God came into believers to live in believers. That's how the Spirit of God is here. That's how the Spirit of God is here. So the Spirit of God is in the world in believers. Verse 8, And when He has come, He will approve the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on Me, of righteousness because I go to My Father and ye see Me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So this is what the Spirit of God does by, by the instrument of the believer in the world. This is us doing it, but not us. This is God doing it in us. This is Jesus who sent the Spirit in His name doing verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, through us. All right? Does everybody understand where I'm going with that? Now, verse number 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. So here Jesus says, I want to teach you, but not now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus says, I have things to teach you. I can't teach you right now, but in the future, I will teach you. How? By the Holy Spirit. So, from all of these verses in John, here's what I want us to understand. By the promise of uh, Christ's promise of another comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, his work, Christ's, Jesus Christ's work would continue after his ascension. And that work would be done by means of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the book of Acts is. That's what it is. The book of Acts is the work of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit through the church. That's what the book of Acts is.
Now, the book of Acts is a, is, has two divisions. What are the two divisions? Somebody help me. Give me one division. Yes, sir. Peter. Peter. The other? Paul. Peter and Paul. It basically has two, 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 uh, two sections. One through 12 is, talks almost exclusively about Peter, with some exceptions. And 13 through the end of the book covers the ministry of Paul, starting with his missionary journey. And they say, and I say they say, and you'll understand why, that the book of Acts is a transitional book because it covers the period of time of the, from the ascension of Christ all the way up until the time, basically, that the revelation of Scripture stops. Not quite that far, but, but as far as historically. Of course, we know John wrote the book of Revelation close to the end of the century there in the first century. But why, the reason it's called a transitional book is because the book of Acts shows development of doctrine that God revealed progressively. God has almost always revealed doctrine progressively, right? We studied that in Sunday school a long time ago, how that God's method of revelation is little by little, by little by little. He gives a little bit at a time. The Bible itself is an example of that. We start in Genesis, and God reveals himself and his will and his character and all those things just a little at a time. If you stopped in Genesis chapter 5 or Genesis chapter 8, you're not getting the whole picture. The rest of the book has to be followed to get the whole picture. The book of I got lost somehow. Okay. The book of Acts is that, is that kind of progress, progressive revelation. Think about, think about the things that are, that are introduced and settled, but weren't settled at the beginning, but are settled later. The Gentile church. Did you know in the book of Acts, the church was exclusively Jewish for the first several chapters of the book? No Gentiles at all. Now, we view the, the, uh, the church now as almost entirely Gentile. The gifts of the Spirit, the role of the law, and how the law relates to the believer in the New Testament time. That wasn't established until later in the book of Acts. In other words, when they started, that question had not been addressed. Whether a Gentile should be circumcised and follow the law. That was, that was not known. It became known later on. Somebody is at my door and I don't know why. Oh, okay. And also the beginning of mission work. That didn't start until chapter 13. All of these things developed slowly through the book of Acts as the church faced questions, went to God, got his mind, and God revealed new things. Now, it was his plan, for instance, let's take the idea of the Gentile church, right? Was that not on the Lord's mind from the beginning? The fact that the church would be made up of all nations? Is that not, was that not on his mind from the beginning? Now, how do we know that? The Great Commission. We've been studying it. Almost every, every account of the Great Commission says that very, in fact, all four accounts of them say that very thing. How is it, that the, how is it then that the early church didn't get that for the first several, book, first several chapters of Acts? It took them time to understand what the Lord had already told them. And so that's why we say it's a transitional book. It covers changes over time as the church began to understand God's plan as it unfolded. All right? So it's a transitional book, but the book of Acts is something else. It is an exemplary book. And by that, I don't mean a good book. Obviously, it's a good book. 
but it's a book that serves as an example. It provides us with practical examples and applications of the early church. In other words, how did the church take the teachings and the, the, the just like we read in, in the book of Acts, um, the, all that Jesus began to do and teach, how did they take what Jesus did and what Jesus taught and apply them and do the things that he commanded? The book of Acts, that was the prototype, the first example of that practice, the church. And so we read the book of Acts and we see it as an example. In our church, as we go through the book of Acts, and this, is, this will be one of the main things we cover, our church would do well to follow the examples we find in the book of Acts about how the church did it. Because you know what I love about the church in, in Acts? Is its simplicity. You know, you think about our building, you know, we've just been bombarded with this thing and that thing going out and crashing and, and being replaced and, you know, all of that. You know, that all of those complications for having buildings and having, you know, we've been trying to do the, get the refund back from the, uh, from the van because we're tax exempt. And that tax exemption is another thing, you know. All these laws and legal things that, you, that a church has to deal with. All of those things, your insurances and your power bills and all the things we have to deal with. You know what? In the book of Acts, you don't see any of that. Now, that's not to say all of that's bad. But what you see is the core. The simple, we might, we might call it the basic and essential elements. You know, you can have a church without a building. You can have a church without power, without water. Do you know that? How do you know? How, how do we know this? All of these things are extra, and we're glad for them. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the air conditioning is on, and we have a nice bathroom, and all those things. I'm glad we have a church van and a playground. All the, I, I'm glad for all that. But that's not necessary. Those are added things. What you see in the book of Acts is the simple, basic, essential elements of the church. You know, if you have God, and you have the Spirit of God, and you have people that believe in Christ, and you have the Bible, you have enough to have a church. Well, where were they going to meet? Where did the early church meet? They met in the temple, the temple complex, in public. That's how they met. They found themselves a corner on that huge expanse of a, of a complex, and they preached, and they sang, and they did whatever they did. That, listen, our church would do well to just look at the simplicity of that example in the book of Acts and just to keep our focus. That all of a sudden, you know, the carpet doesn't matter. You know, I want pretty carpet too, but it really, in the big picture, it doesn't matter. This matters. The work of the church in its most basic form, that kind of recenters what we are, what we're supposed to be. And this, that example is what we find in the book of Acts. Now, there are things in the book of Acts that are transitional, that were not intended to stay as they were in the book of Acts. And by the end, oftentimes, you can see how they kind of passed off. But we should not dismiss, and here's the issue with saying, with saying, and I'm sure you've heard it, well, the book of Acts is a transitional book. You shouldn't get doctrine from the book of Acts. Well, hold on. One of our major foundations of baptism comes from the book of Acts. So you can't pick and choose which parts are transitional and which parts still apply 
But you got to look at the, the 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 context of the whole book of the whole book, and understand that it has a great deal of practical value. And just as a general note, the book of Acts is in the genre of history in the Bible, of the likes of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and Genesis. Much of our Bible is history. God did that on purpose. I'm glad the Bible is not just a whole bunch of laws, a whole bunch of rules. I'm glad. It has that, but it also has poetry, songs, history, prophecy. It has all kinds of things. And you see the good and the bad of, of God's people. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, listen to this. Now these things, he's referring to the Old Testament events. These things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. As these Old Testament examples were, so the book of Acts is to us. An example, a pattern for Choice Hills Baptist Church to follow. Romans 15.4 For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. You find all kinds of good things in the book of Acts about how they dealt with persecution, how God delivered them, how they served God, how they prayed, how they preached, how they witnessed. All kinds of good things that are good examples for our church here and now. And as I said, I'll say it again. If we pattern our church after that core the core elements that we find in the book of Acts, we will have a solid foundation for serving the Lord and doing God's will in this world. That's why we have the book of Acts. Now, in chapter 1, Theophilus is mentioned. If you kind of hold your kind of maybe stick something in Acts 1 and then look back at Luke chapter 1 because I want to reference both of these real quick. Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says this, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of the things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good, also, good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. It means a lover of God. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now back in Acts, he mentions infallible Proofs of Jesus' resurrection. And then in, in, and then in, uh, in chapter 1 of Luke, he, taught, he uses language like this, most surely believed, eyewitnesses, perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Verse 4 says, certainty. Luke wrote both Acts and the Gospel of Luke. Luke is really concerned and Luke really emphasizes the veracity of the claims, teaching, works, and especially 
the resurrection of Christ in both Luke and Acts. And for that matter, truth and being able to ascertain and establish with certainty the truth of the claims of Christ was an important matter for Luke. And he spends a lot of time talking about it. You look at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. There were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Notice the details. Chapter 2, verse 1 says the same thing. If you look at that, it says this. And it came to pass in those days, they went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And Joseph also went up in that. I mean, he gives a lot of details about, about time periods and, and dominions and kings and governors. And the book of Acts is no exception. He's trying to establish historical context. Why? Because Luke is concerned that we understand that the things that Christ said and did and the things that are recorded that the church did, Christ did through the Holy Spirit in the church, are true. Truth is the foundation of our faith. If it's not true, it's vain. If it didn't really happen, why are we here? This is what Luke establishes. Now Luke himself, Luke himself was not a witness of the resurrection. In fact, he says... Um, in chapter 1, Luke was most likely a Gentile. Chapter 1, he says, from the beginning, verse 2, were eyewitnesses. So Luke was told about Christ from the eyewitnesses who saw Christ, those like Peter and James and John. But he himself was not an eyewitness. Now let's look back at chapter 1. And one last thing I want to share with you about these infallible proofs. Because in verse 3, he talks about, uh, it says in verse, verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Now, Luke doesn't tell you what these are. He just says, these proofs were demonstrated in the 40 days after Christ's resurrection. But here's the point. When you read the book of Acts, when we read it, what we're going to find is that the resurrection of Christ is prominent. In Judea, that Christ died was not questioned. Many saw that and knew that to be fact. Historically, even now in our day, that's not a disputed point that Christ died. Notwithstanding what Islam says. Islam says that it wasn't really Christ that died on the cross. It was someone that looked like Him. But... Putting that aside, historically speaking, the, the crucifixion of Christ is not a question. What stands out in Acts is the resurrection. Now, here are some of the infallible proofs. This is from Barnes Notes. These, this is good. Uh, number one, because the resurrection was to the disciples unexpected. So there was no delusion because they were hoping for the resurrection there was no like delusion that the disciples made it up because they were hoping that Jesus would have been raised from the dead. They weren't looking for it. Even the very morning they went to the tomb, they were not expecting to find it empty. Number two, it was impossible that they could have been uh, deceived in relation to, uh, to the one with whom they had been familiar more than three years. They knew Christ. 
personally, intimately. Number three, there were enough of them, enough of the disciples and other witnesses to avoid the possibility of deception. These are, these are proofs now. And there's more than the ones I'm reading. Number four, he was with them sufficient time to give evidence of his personal identity. That's why the 40 days is so important. Number five, they saw him in various places and at times in which there could be no deception. In Galilee, in Judea, all kinds of different locations and times. Number six, he appeared to them as he had always done, as a friend, a companion, and a benefactor. He ate with them, wrought a miracle before them, engaged in the same work as he did before he suffered. These are just six of the, of the infallible proofs, and there are more. For instance, all the appearances of Christ after his resurrection demonstrate proof of his resurrection. Christ was, you think there's five, you have five senses, right? Three, maybe even four of the five senses were proof that Christ rose from the dead. They saw him with their eyes. They heard him with their ears. They touched his body. And I imagine if they got close to him, I'm reading between the lines now, they probably smelled his scent. That's four senses if you count the fourth. They, saw, they, they knew firsthand that he had risen from the dead. These are infallible proofs. And then consider his, uh, his appearances. Here's a list of appearances. To Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, to the, the disciples that same day without Thomas, to the disciples again when Thomas was present. In Galilee at the Sea of Tiberias to Peter, Na Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two others. To the disciples on the mountain in Galilee. That's the Great Commission. To more than 500 brethren at once. To James, one of the apostles. To all of the apostles assembled together. He was seen of them 40 days after he rose. To the apostles after his ascension. And last, he was seen of Paul. Now. I want to share something with you. As I said, Luke's purpose is to establish with certainty, with evidence, that the things that we say we believe are actually true. True. That is so important for us to understand. I came across this video, and I want to share it with you to close. Brother Phil, can you turn this on? And you can mute this one while that's on. Listen to this. Why should I believe that Jesus, Jesus was resurrected? Because the historical evidence is that okay, he really died medical, and he really rose from the dead. You give me some medical records and I'll believe it, okay? You show me Jesus Christ's medical track, I'll, be, I'll buy into it. I'll be a Christian to date. Ma'am, they didn't keep medical records in the first century. Oh, that's so convenient, isn't that? That's wonderful. No, rather, it's real convenient for you to say, knowing full well they didn't keep medical records in the first century, it's so convenient for you to say, all right, if, if you give me the medical records, then I'll believe. Talk about convenient. Give me a break. How convenient of you to say, unless we have it on Polaroid film, I can't believe it, knowing full well they didn't have Polaroid film in the first century. 
how convenient of you to say, well, show me the medical records from NYU Hospital, and then I'll believe Jesus rose from the dead, knowing full well NYU Hospital did not exist in the first century. Come on, man. Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, Aristotle, show me the medical records for them, will you? Historical knowledge is not based on medical records, ma'am. It's based on the trustworthiness of eyewitness testimony. And the eyewitnesses is that Herodotus and Aristotle and Cicero and Virgil really lived. They're not just figments of people's fertile imagination. And the historical evidence is that Jesus really lived, really died, and really rose from the dead. And eyewitnesses saw him risen from the dead. And they wrote what they saw. You see the importance of Luke's stated purpose to especially uh, establish that the resurrection of Christ really happened. And people say, oh, well, we need proof. We need proof. Did you know that a, that a reliable and trustworthy witness, eyewitness, is strong proof? Strong proof. And that's really all the proof that we need. And you know, the benefit of this is Luke... Because of his familiarity and his knowledge of all of these, all of these writers, Peter and Paul and, and others, he had direct access to those people who gave eyewitness testimony, both for the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, and for the book of Acts. And his purpose is to establish with certainty that the things we believe are actually true. Let's pray.